Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest is a returning guest from a long time ago, uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan. He's a well-known alternative medicine doctor, an author, and a speaker. He's got a common-sense, holistic approach to health and wellness. Uh, he's given many, many lectures and workshops throughout the U.S. on a variety of subjects in health and medicine. And he's authored six books, including The Contagion Myth, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, and, and more. So welcome back, Tom. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You're Richard. If you would just maybe go over a little bit of background on yourself, and then uh, we'll talk about your current work. So I grew up fairly normal sort of person, although the only interesting thing I think was that my father and grandfather were dentists and I was in a community of a lot of doctors and I was kind of expected to be a doctor, but I didn't really like it. So I went to college, tried to do anything but be a doctor. Then I joined the Peace Corps and taught gardening. And while I was there, I learned that there was other kinds of doctors than the kinds I didn't want to be. And somehow that allowed me to go into medicine. And so I did. And so I spent 37 years general practice, primary care type stuff. I haven't done any medicine. I gave up my license about four years ago now. And just talking about what I learned in those 37 years. Yeah, you got your license is a big deal. Are you open to talking about that story in life? If you want, sure. Yeah, just briefly. And then, you know, I'd like to hear about what you learned and then what you're working on today. So if I was to summarize what I learned and, you know, if there's any message I want people to remember from hearing me, and it took me a long time to get this, to really get this, is that the process of logic, rational thinking, and in particular science is the investigation of claims to see if they're accurate or they can be falsified. And unfortunately, most people think it's a battle of theories. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. If somebody makes, if you ha- take the subject of rain, why is there rain? How do cl- cloud, you know, float around in the air? It's actually a very complicated subject because the water is heavier than the air and why doesn't it fall down? And I've looked into that and it's very complicated. So somebody comes along and makes the claim. The reason there's rain is there's elephants peeing in the sky and they float around and that's why we have rain. And so what one does in that situation is you investigate that claim. You find out how high up are the elephants, what kind of elephants, what color they are, what's their density, everything you can find. Then you go up in a helicopter or an airplane and see if they're actually elephants. You, of course, find there isn't. And then you make the conclusion that that claim is incorrect. That is not the reason for the rain. And you still may not know or don't know why there's rain in clouds. 
but that has no bearing on whether elephants are the cause of rain, right? That's obvious. So I have been doing that my whole career. So I investigated the claim that the heart pumps the blood, and I found out that it doesn't. I investigated the claim that blocked arteries cause heart attacks, and I found out that it doesn't. I investigated the claim that vaccines are safe and effective and found out they weren't. I investigated the claim that cancer has anything to do with genetics or that DNA is the blueprint of life, and I found out that they don't. And then recently I investigated the claim that there is a particle called a virus and it makes people sick. And it was easy to find out that there isn't, that nobody has actually demonstrated that that claim is accurate. And so even if one doesn't know what causes heart attacks or what causes cancer, those claims have been shown to be false. Can we go over for a minute? Just the, the heart ones. You said that it doesn't pump blood and that, you know, there were two claims about the heart. Can you talk in a little bit more detail about them? So the first claim that we all learn in probably elementary school, and we got off the subject of my license, which actually isn't that interesting. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, so I basically surrendered my license. So that's pretty much the whole story. So another part of this is trying to find out what the foundational question is that will answer this claim. One of the ways that I describe this, if you put three dots on a piece of paper right? And you say, are these dots in a straight line? Then if you say, well, how am I going to sort this claim out? And I would say, you don't need a debate. You don't need to have a, to go to a PhD program to figure it out. What you need is a ruler, right? And you put your ruler against the three dots. And if they're in a straight line, they are. And if they're not, they aren't. And you live with that result. When you look at the heart, they say it's a pressure propulsion device, meaning the walls of the heart contract and the muscular contraction pushes and therefore propels the blood around the body. That's what we all learn. Now, there's a few reasons why that cannot be true. And if you try to figure out what is the foundational thing that will address that. There's actually two. One is that the blood goes through thousands of miles of blood, blood vessels, sorry, and it gets narrower and narrower and slows down as it it goes through these vessels, and then it stops at the capillaries, which are tiny little blood vessels. And then it starts going again and goes faster and faster and faster until it gets to the heart. So if you can imagine this, it's easier if I draw it, but if there's no visual here. If you had a a water that's going really fast and then it goes slower and slower and slower, then it ends up stopped in a pond, and then you want to get it going back up to the place where it's going faster, where would you put the pump? Yeah, you'd want to put it, I guess, below, you know, where the the level of the, the liquid is so it can pump it up out of there. Right, where the water stopped. But that's the capillaries. There's no pump there. Why would you put the pump at the place where the water is going the fastest? But yet that's what they're saying. Now, imagine this then. So let's say you have a pump and you're pumping 10,000 miles to really small vessels. That is a hell of a pump. In fact, when you do the math, it's about 40 times the pressure that they say the heart actually generates. So that's impossible. But then imagine this. You have a garden hose that's in a shape like an arch, like McDonald's arch. And the garden hose is flexible, so it can bend, it can straighten, it can bend in or whatever. 
So you turn the faucet off, the spigot, and that's relaxed. And then you turn the water on full blast, 40 times, you know, the pressure that a heart can generate if it was pumping. And the hose can bend, the arch can bend. What way would the arch bend at maximum pressure? What would it do? No, I guess it would attempt to straighten out and come out of the arch shape. Exactly. It's good that you're saying this because it's very easy to sort that out because we all have that experience. Now, I can tell you that when you look at a cardiac catheterization and you see the heart in systole where it's pumping and you see it go through the aortic arch, which is a flexible tube, it doesn't straighten, it bends in. Now, that is... Pumping. Exactly. So what happens is the, the blood starts moving from the periphery. It goes faster and faster just because it goes from like a wetland into a river. So the volume gets compressed. It goes faster and faster. It goes to the heart. The heart stops the blood. It builds up the pressure behind essentially the wall of the heart. It then creates a vortex which suctions the blood out of the heart and that's why aortic arch bends in and all of that makes perfect sense with the way that the blood moves and the water moves and every other fluid moves and this nonsense about the heart pumping the blood doesn't admit any of the observable fact. So is it more of a siphoning pump? It's a. It's essentially like a hydraulic ram where the water flows into a tank. The tank has expandable walls. The walls expand when the water comes in. And then when the pressure builds up, it builds up positive pressure in the tank and negative pressure on the other side of the gate. And when the pressure builds up, it creates actually a vortex in the heart, which then the blood is essentially sucked out of the heart. There's no pushing or the only thing the walls of the heart do are doing is holding the blood back. Everything about how we approach heart disease, because if you know, for instance, that the pumping action, the, the original motion of the movement of the blood is from the periphery. Now, here's another question for you. If you have a weak pumping action, right? So weak flow, and you want to water your, your garden a half a mile away, but you've got weak flow, all you can do is change the caliber of the hose, let's not half a mile, like 200 yards away. So you can change the caliber of your hose. What would you do? I would make sure it's smooth. There's no obstructions. Wider or narrow? Wider. Wider? Well, I would make it wider so that the pressure drop doesn't need to be as much to get their fluid through. Yeah, but the, here's the problem. If you make it wider, think of this. If you have a tube and you don't have very much pressure, right, because your pump is broken, it's going to make it worse right? Well, so you constrict the vessel. Strict the vessel, and then you get less water, but it's still flow, right? So if you have a situation where the blood isn't flowing properly from the periphery where it starts, the body in its wisdom will narrow the tubes in order to maintain the flow. Now, unfortunately, because medical doctors don't understand any of this, they think you have a disease called high blood pressure because you've narrowed your tubes. And then if you put plaque in there to shore up the tubes so that they don't burst, they think you have a disease called arterial sclerosis. What you have is an ingenious and brilliant strategy by your amazing body to create flow even though your pump pressure is weak. So that's not a disease. That's a 
therapeutic strategy. Now, the reason that's important is because if you know then what causes the blood to move, which I did, then I never had to use high blood pressure drugs, which never work, right? How many people, raise your hand out there, have been cured of high blood pressure with blood pressure drugs? The answer is zero, because all it can do is widen the tubes and then you'll get erectile dysfunction and dizzy and all the rest of it because you have worse flow. Whereas if you increase the flow, which is very easy to do, your body will stop narrowing the tubes and then you don't have high blood pressure. And that's what we do in our new biology clinic because we actually think along the ways the body is actually organized instead of theories which actually have been disproven. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, why would a heart, you know, become less efficient in its suction capacity? Why would it be able to produce less flow and thereby atherosclerosis would be there? Why does it happen? It isn't the heart that's doing that. It's the flow. The flow is weak. So then you have to s figure out what causes flow. Now, we already know that the flow happens in the tissues, right? Because that's where the blood stops. And as you said, where the water stops, that's where you have to put the pump, i.e. the generator of the flow. So the question then is, what is the generator of the flow in the tissues, right? That's what we're trying to address because it isn't the heart that generates the flow. That would mean the heart is a pump. So now imagine this. So we're told again in something like third grade or I don't know what age that matter exists in three forms, liquid, solid, or gas, right? So you got ice, water, or steam. That's the three states of water. Which state is jello in? It's 97% water. You know, gelatin, I guess, is uh, maybe its own state, like a foam. Would right. There's another state called a gel state or organized water, structured water, easy water. There's a lot of different names for it, coherent water. And when I was told in medical school that, you know, 90-some percent of the cellular content is water, I remember asking myself, and I was an ER doctor for a little while, so which state is it in? Is it ice? Well, no. Is it steam? Obviously, no. So it's got to be liquid water. So I saw people stabbed and bayoneted and shot and all that. How many times I saw water squirting out of people? Never. Never. So where's the water? What if you stabbed a bowl of jello? Nothing happens. So it turns out all the water in us, besides like urine and some parts of the blood, is in this gel state. And gels form when there's an interaction of water with a hydrophilic surface 
like a capillary. And you can prove this very easily. You take a beaker of water and you suspend a horizontal hydrophilic tube like Nafion in the water. And in the inside of the tube, it will form a little gel layer. And the gel layer is negatively charged, which means just the nature of the formation of the gel separates the negative charges from the positive charges which go into the water, get dissolved in the water, and they repel each other and create flow. And you can measure it, right? So you can measure there's nothing pushing the water, just positive charges in the water repelling each other and flowing through the water. And so then you can measure the velocity. Now, you can take that beaker of water, put it in a lead box, and the flow stops. You shine the sun on it, the flow goes faster. You put it on the earth, the flow goes faster. You put your hands on it, the flow goes faster. You put your dog next to it, most dogs, the flow goes faster. You put your cell phone next to the beaker, the flow stops. Because the radiation from a cell phone stops the formation of the gel, stops the separation of charges, and that is the origin of the flow. So the same thing happens in us, in our capillaries, our hydrophilic tubes. They're all over muscles, all over our liver, our organs. They create this separation of charges that creates flow. And then the flow circulates the blood through the body and the heart is just a regulator in there. So if you have a person who never is in the sun and never grounds to the earth and never eats good food and never moves properly and has all kinds of negative emotions and puts their cell phone and spends all their time on a computer, they will have or flow, and then their body will constrict the vessels, and they will have congestive heart failure and high blood pressure and arteriosclerosis to shore up the vessels as the body attempts in this unusual toxic situation to create some kind of flow. It's very simple and straightforward. Interesting. So what would you do to treat someone that was in this advanced state? Tell them... Eat good food and move the way humans are meant to move and ground to the earth and go in the sun. And there's some other things. You need some ions to help the water create this charge. And I can tell you, in 35 years, I never had to treat anybody with blood pressure drug because that's, that's the problem. What do statins do then in an attempt to lower cholesterol and clear out these blockages? I mean, what negative things do they do? Are they poison your brain? Because your brain is basically, the main paradigm I'm talking about here is conventional medicine thinks that your body is stupid and that things happen to you for no reason, that you're just a victim of bad luck, invisible viruses, which actually don't exist, genes, which actually don't even make proteins, or just simply bad luck. So... You didn't have anything to do with it. You're a victim. So your cholesterol is too high. That's genetic. So you give cholesterol drugs and they stop you from making this substance called cholesterol. Now, here's the reality. So let me ask you another question. If you had a, a leaky pipe and if that pipe broke, it would flood your house and kill you or at least ruin the value of your house, what would you do? And by the way, you don't have the money to like cut out that section of the pipe and put a new pipe in. Or you'd patch the pipe to try to patch the hole so you can install the flow. Yeah, you would patch the leak, right? 
so it wouldn't burst. Like you might put some duct tape around it if you really bore, or you might put duct tape with a little bit of silly putty or something to try to keep it from bursting, right? Bursting is the enemy. Agree? Yep, I'm with you. Okay, you got this weak wall that doesn't have the gel protecting layer, right? It's in your artery. If your artery bursts, you're dead, right? What would you do? You can't go in there and saw off that portion of the artery and sew a new one in. That's not possible. So what would you do? You'd try to encourage the regrowth of that uh, gel layer to protect it and hopefully patch it. Maybe you could patch it. uh... Right. You would patch it, right? Temporarily. Hope the person regrows the gel layer and protects it. So what are you going to use to patch it with? They don't have super glue inside your arteries. How about cholesterol? And they put a little bit of calcium in there just to make it a little stiffer. So it turns out, like everything, that medicine misinterprets what's happening in your body. I mean, literally everything. So they say this is a disease, but in fact, it's a consequence of weak walls and a failure of the protective gel layer, which comes about because... You have pure water, which have the right amount of minerals in it. And by the way, if you're exposed to heavy metals like lead and arsenic, your body, if you're mineral deficient, will hang on to those and use those in places where it's supposed to have ionized, healthy minerals like magnesium, calcium, etc. So you've got a lot of reasons why you're not flowing properly. You're not forming a protective gel layer. You've got a weak vessel. And you say to yourself, meaning the wisdom part of you, meaning your body, I got a problem here because if this blood vessel bursts, I'm screwed. So I got to use something like a waxy substance, you know, like some putty on this vessel, and then I'll put some stiffening in it like calcium and we'll be good for a little while. I mean, I know it constricts the vessel a little bit, but what do you want me to do? And maybe this schmo will figure out that he needs to, you know, walk more and take more ions and eat healthy food and ground himself to the earth and and have better relations and think proper thoughts or something. I don't think we're going to fix this otherwise. That's exactly what happens. That's why the death rate with statin drugs always goes up. That's why they use them, because that's the purpose of medicine these days. Purpose being what? To keep people addicted to their products without seeing a benefit. They don't know that, but that's actually what the, that's the business model. Have you used these protocols? I was going to say, you can probably see why I wasn't a very good fit having a medical license. All right. So do you recommend these protocols to people and did they, did they uh, come back from the, uh, from the poor health state or would you notice? Absolutely. That's what I did for 37 years. And the key of this is the switch from your stupid body. It's and You didn't have anything to do with it. It's just, you're just making a mistake. You know, and I started this, you know, 40 years ago, just using simple examples. Like we were taught in medical school, pus means infection, right? That's obvious. Got a bacterial infection. What would happen, Rich, if you got a splinter in your finger and you didn't take it out? Yeah, your body would surround it with material and try to isolate it from the rest of your body, but you'd have an infection first. Or you get pus, right? Right. That is the pus, the disease, or is it the body's way of getting out the splinter? That is the body's way of getting the splinter out. Yeah, so it's a therapeutic response, right? 
Right. And then it gets the splinter out and then it goes away and then you know, the whole thing clears up. It's a similar example. So you breathe in toxic fumes, dust, stuff they spray in the air, all this kind of stuff, cigarette smoke, whatever. So what does your body do? That's the splinter. So your body makes pus or mucus or both. Fever heats up the gel, which is basically protecting your lungs, and that makes mucus, which runs, and then you cough it up to get rid of the debris, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, when you go to the doctor, he says, oh, you have a disease called bronchitis. It's caused by this adenovirus or RSV virus, or which they can't find, by the way, or some bacteria. And you didn't have anything to do with it, so don't worry about it. And so we're going to stop you from coughing up the debris. And then you do that for twice a year for 20 years if you're a smoker. And then you get a bag of debris in your lungs. And they see it on the x-ray and they say, oh, you have a bag of debris in your lungs. That's called lung cancer. Well, how did I get it? It's genetic. Yeah, but did it have anything to do with the fact that I tried to cough it out every year for twice a year for 20 years and you stopped me from coughing out the mucus? No, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, I see there's uh, fever reducers. There's all these things probably counteract what the body's naturally trying to do to help itself. Exactly. So if you have a medicine based on thwarting healing and it works because that's what it's trying to do, it's keeping it's every time you get a splinter and you make pus you give the person an antibiotic and they're going to end up with a splinter for the rest of their life i mean this isn't like rocket science and if person puts debris in their lungs and they try to cough it out and liquefy their gels to make mucus with a fever and you stop it you're going to end up with a person with build up debris in their lungs This is not rocket science, and that's what causes chronic COPD and lung cancer and chronic fibrotic lung disease. Those are all just fancy names for, hey, bud, you got a lot of debris in your lung and it's poisoning your tissue. So why does it seem like medicines do seem to help sometimes? What's happening in those cases? Because if you had pus in, in trying to get your splinter out and you gave person an antibiotic, the pus would go away, the splinter would stay, and it wouldn't hurt as much. And then when the antibiotic wore off, you would do it again and again and again until you got antibiotic toxicity, which actually happens the first time. And then your body would say, man, this person's an idiot. So I'm just going to wall off this splinter and we'll just ride this out. So why does it uh, look like it's getting better? Because you've stopped the healing process, and the healing process has symptoms, as you would expect, because your body is telling you, you know, you need to rest here and, you know, take care of yourself and drink more liquid and whatever. So this is not the time to run a marathon. So just cool it for a while. Let's do our house cleaning and we'll be good. And so you can you can stop that just like you can stop the pus from getting your splinter out, you can stop the pus in your lungs from getting the debris out, you will think you feel better. And if you're a superficially thinking person, you will think this is effective medicine and you will end up with a population that has lung cancer, which is exactly our population. 
Okay. It's not complicated. What are some of the alternate treatments or treatments that, that you were, you know, you would have recommend or you do recommend or, you know, a lot of get the lung, to get the crap out of your lungs that, that there's a whole lot of different ways to do that. We, we don't really have to get into that. The important point is the, the thinking process. The thinking process goes from everything that happens to you, the tumors, the blood pressure, the atherosclerosis, all this stupid body, you have a defect too. Seeing that everything that happens is is has a sort of lawfulness, and it's actually your body's amazing and brilliant attempts to heal you. Once you get that switch in your thinking, the details become easy. So, what about the uh, the origin of cancer? Whatever you found is the you believe to be the true mechanism of it. So here's an interesting claim. Again, we go back to what is the claim with cancer? The fundamental claim. And again, I always, you know, if I'm talking to somebody and I, you know, we haven't talked much, but if you hear something you don't, you don't think is right, I would rather you just say, no, Tom, I don't like that. Or I don't think, but the fundamental claim is cancer is a aberrant cell for a whole lot of different reasons. But anyways, it's a cell that has decided to go its own way and has excessive growth, and it's a messed up cell. Would you agree with that? Right, yeah. Yes. Okay. Let me ask you another question, because sometimes the only way people get it is if I use an analogy. So we're talking about a messed up cell. It's got funny number of chromosomes. It doesn't look right. It's got weird sort of uh, fluid dynamics. Everything about it is goofy. So, Rich, I got this car to sell you, and it's. Uh, I took it to the junk to the place, and they smashed it with one of those wrecking balls, and the brakes don't work, and the steering wheels in the trunk, and you know the engines in the back seat. And but, Rich, believe me, it runs better than a normal car. You want to buy it? No, I mean, yeah, it would be hard to trust it, right? It sounds crazy. <laughs> right, it sounds crazy. Because if there's that messed up of a car, my guess is it doesn't run at all, or certainly not run faster and better than a normal normal car, right? Yeah. So you and I buy that car. Okay, Rich, I got this cell. It's got messed up chromosomes. It's, you know, it's spindle apparatus is all goofy. It doesn't have the right shape. But trust me, it grows better than a normal cell. You believe it? Well, no, it grows faster, but maybe not better. Faster, right. Faster than a normal cell. The car goes faster than a normal car. I don't believe it. Not only that, Rich, this cell that's, it crawl, it go, it grows and forms this big old mass. And then when it gets so big, it starts crawling through the blood vessels and the lymph, and it crawls from your prostate over to your lungs and your liver and your bones. And that's called a metastasis. And then that kills you. Right? Okay, Doc, can you show it to me in the blood, the cells? No. Why not? Well, we can't find them in the blood. Why not? You just told me that these funny cells crawl through my blood. Well, we can't find them in the blood. Now, let's think of this another way. What would you do? You got a house, right? Okay. Okay, and I, I happen to come to your house, and I put a whole bunch of stinky garbage Right in in your house. What what are you gonna do? Sides, uh, report me to the police. Yeah, take it out and get rid of it. Throw it away. How about and put it in like cans or bags or something first? Right, put it in bags. Get it out of there. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's what the body does. You got a bunch of stinky garbage. Where? How do you get it? Because you kept putting it in, and somebody keeping you from getting it out. 
So now you got all this garbage in your house and you get vaccines, which are full of garbage and you take drugs, which are full of garbage and they spray stuff in the air and you eat stuff that's all full of garbage and you got all this garbage. So finally your body says, I'm going to put it in a bag and put it in the garage and hopefully you take it out to the curb. Okay. You do that and it gets, it gets more and more and we call that a tumor. And then you go to the surgeon and he takes out your bag of garbage and then you're okay, except he puts more garbage in there and you put more garbage. And so your garage is gone because they took out the garage and then you put it in the spare bedroom and then you put it in the living room and then you put it in the bedroom and then you put it in the kitchen. Those are called metastases. And then you can't live in your house anymore and that's called die or death. So that's what happens with cancer. You put more and more toxic debris, they poison you even more, and then you get more and more places where your body tries to store this debris, and we call those metastases not crawling anywhere. These cells aren't even growing. They can't possibly grow because they can't they don't have a regular number of chromosomes which would allow for cell division. They can't possibly grow. They're just at, you're just adding more garbage to the heap, which is why the so-called tumor grows. And if you look at every natural medicine, whether it's sweat lodges and hyperthermia and coffee enemas and fasting, it's all based on you got to get that garbage out of your house. Okay. It's exactly everything you see is exactly explained by that way of seeing it and this whole thing about cells growing and, you know, the genes doing this, it's pure make-believe. Those cells can't grow. So what, what is a, a protocol for someone that has, you know, cancer and a significant tumor burden? How could they help themselves? Get rid of your toxic crap. But again, Rich, without sounding like a broken record, unless the person gets the point here, again, you're seeing this as your body's attempt to deal with a problem that you have at least largely created. Therefore, you have the power, you have the sovereignty and the agency to deal with this. That's the important point. Then you can figure out ways, and there's lots of ways, of cleansing the body and getting rid of the debris, and they work. The other way never works, which is why, you know, when the government looks at the 50 years of the war on cancer, hundreds of trillions of dollars, they say we have about a 2.1% improvement in outcome, which is basically nothing. Yeah, that's crazy. Over 50 years, that is nothing. And it's all outlined in my cancer and new biology book. And yet they keep doing the same old model. It's literally, it, it has no relevance to what you actually could see. If you look at these cells, they can't possibly grow. And yet the whole edifice of oncology is killing growing cells, poisoning them, burning them, removing them. I mean, removing them sometimes helps, right? Just like removing the garbage from your house helps a little bit, but it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is you're inputting garbage. So, I mean, in your current capacity, now that you've given up the medical license, you're you're writing books, but how can people get help and get the real knowledge on what's going on? So, you know, we, we actually started a company that is doing two things. One, we have what's called a new biology curriculum, which is we're looking at what is true and what isn't. 
and in medicine and biology. And so different people, mostly practitioners, they sign up, there's reading, there's videos. We have meetings every couple of weeks. We go over questions. And so the one way is by having the new biology curriculum, which is a learning system. The other way is I, you know, I've been working with various doctors for years explaining this and working together with, you know, it's not like I have all the answers, but, you know, a framework of doing this. And we turned that into a new biology clinic, uh, which is an online for now clinic where people sign up, become members, and they present their story to a variety of doctors. We have a neurologist and family doctor, pain specialist, psychiatrist, all kinds of other people. And using these principles, they suggest ways of solving people's troubles. Hmm. Good. Have you observed that there's a very high success rate when people follow like the, you know these these different protocols for cancer or other ailments? Yes. Or otherwise, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> what, yeah. Well, what conditions or you know like acute illnesses do require modern medicine? You know, it does seem like sometimes the body is trying to heal itself, but it just you know it's not able to do it. What happens in those cases? If you got a knife stuck in your back and your friends can't pull it out without trouble, that's a time for conventional medicine. And of course, there are times that are dangerous and, you know, you have to sort of mitigate the situation. And there's a whole variety of things that will do that in, you know, acute ER type care. So we're not claiming that we can do away with everything in modern medicine, but anything to do with Anything that's not an urgent situation, I would say, I would think twice before having, be getting treated with the tools of conventional medicine. Yeah, yeah. In what circumstances would conventional medicine, you know, I don't know, let's say you're like really, 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 really sick. And, yeah, yeah, you got a knife stuck in your back. You got a knife well, stuck in your back. That, but let's say you're, you're like really sick and there's not time to now change your diet and do all these other things to help yourself. And that yeah, kind of I mean, we, we have things you. too, but that, you know, we're talking about something that's essentially, you know, 37 years of me doing medicine. I don't think I saw those problems hardly at all, maybe five times in 37 years. So it's very rare. I mean, I was an ER doctor, like I said. So we saw, not saying that people don't get sick and die. Of course they do. And, you know, there's times when you have to do things that you wouldn't like to do otherwise. But, Rich, that is so sort of off the point of we we have a failing, broken, sick, A, medical system. But more importantly, the way we understand biology and medicine is it's just one flawed, disproven theory after another. I mean, and I, I can go as many of them as you want. Uh, we can talk about... Well, I, got, I got one more. Yeah. Heart attacks. What would be a treatment for, you know, post-heart attack versus what they do now with stents and all that stuff? So the claim with heart attacks, correct me if you disagree, is that you have these three major coronary arteries and they get blocked with plaque. The plaque get, can't get through. Sorry, the blood can't get through. And downstream, you have a heart attack. Do you agree with that? Right. That's what I've been told, yeah. Have you ever seen a study that's on autopsy of people who died of heart attacks? How many of them actually had a blockage in that artery leading to that part of the heart? Well, it heard the microvasculature of the heart represents like 90% of the flow 
And so if that's blocked, it's not normally seen and that you can't really stent or, you know, open up. And that is really the cause of, uh, you know, chronic heart problems. But what, what's the answer to my question? You ever seen a study that says, oh, we looked at all these people on autopsy. They died of a heart attack. Here's the percentage of them that had a blockage in that, that artery. That's the part that you talk about stents and bypasses and statins. You're not unblocking the microcirculation. You're blocking, unblocking, if anything, the three major coronary arteries. So hmm. it's important to say, Actually, if you do an investigation, what percentage of those people who died, and those are obviously the worst of the worst, actually have a blockage? Do you know what the answer is? What? So here's the interesting thing. And again, if people are listening, go to your family doctor, your internist, or your cardiologist. Ask them that question. So you're saying, the reason I have a heart attack is I have a blocked artery. Can you show me a study with autopsies, right? Because that's the definitive way of knowing. That tells me the percentage of people who, with a, with a blocked artery uh, who died of a heart attack. Now, they won't know. And that's maybe the difference between them and me is when I ran into this, because there was a lot of reasons I knew that this blocked artery thing is nonsense. So I went and looked at the studies, and I think I've read every single study that's ever been done, and the range is between 18% and 78% as highest. The biggest and best study done over 40 years in Italy, a guy named Giorgio Baroldi, said 41% of the people who died of a heart attack, so again, the worst of the worst, have any blockage at all in that artery leading to that part of the heart, and half of those blockages came after the heart attack, not before. So we're down to 20% of the people who die of a heart attack even have any blockage at all, which doesn't mean it's the cause. It just means they have a blockage. And yet we have a $50 trillion industry based on unblocking arteries when we know from the studies that 80% of them don't even have a blocked artery who die of a heart attack. Now, if somebody wants to dispute that, they're going to have to send me a study with autopsies that shows that I'm wrong. Because And I've asked for 10 years, cardiologists, they can't show me one study. So I assume at this point I am correct. In fact, I know I'm correct. Which means that this whole way of approaching this with, as you said, stents, bypass, etc., is based on a fundamental erroneous assumption that the cause is blocked arteries. Now, I mean, they'll do like, uh, you know, an ultrasound and they'll see a vessel or two that is blocked, and they'll say, oh, we got to stent it. That's the reason. Right. So it may not be that particular vessel that did it, or maybe, I don't know. The best study that's ever been, and they will tell you, if they're honest, that stenting or bypassing has never been shown to prevent heart attacks. It's never been shown to help people live longer. They will say it only reduces your angina or chest pain. However, the only study that was actually done was published in the Lancet 2018 that actually did a blinded study of stents. So they took people with chest pain. They had a single vessel disease. They saw it on an ultrasound or a nuclear scan or an angiogram. They they did a stent in half. The other half, they told them they put a stent in but didn't. They waited eight weeks. They had exactly the same amount of chest pain. 
Exactly. The headline of the article, New York Times actually did a piece on this. Stents proven useless because they don't help you live longer, they don't reduce the rate of heart attacks, and they don't even, it turns out, end up helping you have less chest pain. Those rich are the facts. Whether anybody likes it or not, those are the facts. I've heard, yeah, I've heard stents are useless, They're useless because the theory that they're based on is useless. It's wrong. And so then you have to discard that theory and say, so what causes a organ to die like this? And by the way, one of the reasons I got into this was, and again, you see if you can follow my reasoning here. They say that it's blocked arteries because there's something in the blood that's precipitating in the vessel, right? Like cholesterol or LDL. Right. So question one is, are the arteries in your body, like to the liver and the spleen and your leg and the heart and your brain, all the same artery? No, there's all different ones. Yeah, there's different arteries, but they're all made of the same stuff. Anatomically, they're the same. Yes, correct. In fact, that's why you can change them one for the other. So what about this question? Is the Stuff in your blood, in other words, the composition of your blood that goes through your heart, the same as this composition of the blood that goes through your spleen and liver and foot and all the rest of it. Well, temporarily it may change if there's a filtration, you know, just downstream of the filtration, there may be less of this or that, but it would stabilize pretty quickly. Right. So it's essentially the same blood. So you got high cholesterol in your coronary arteries, you got high cholesterol in your splenic artery and in your femoral artery, right? Oh, so why would it precipitate preferentially in one area and not another? Correct. Yeah, okay. So you, you in fact, it in fact it doesn't. You in fact there is evidence that you get precipitation everywhere. You know, if you have generalized atherosclerosis because you have these weak vessels that I talked about, you will get blockages in your spleen artery, in your liver artery, hepatic artery, femoral artery, etc. Okay, next question. You ever known anybody or heard of anybody who's had a heart attack? Yes. How about a spleen attack? No. How about a liver attack? attack? But a gallbladder attack's different. How about a liver attack? No. Uh, No. How come if you get blockages in those vessels, only the heart has so-called ischemic attacks? I don't know. Neither does anybody else. Well, I know. Because there's something different. It can't be the blood or it can't be the arteries because those are the same. But the heart is different than your leg or your spleen. So here's the difference. If your metabolic capacity of the tissue, be it the heart or the leg or the spleen, exceeds its essentially its fuel supply. You do something called a glycolytic shift and you start fermenting instead of respiring. And that process builds up lactic acid in the tissues and that last lactic acid acidifies the tissues. And if it happens like in your leg, you get the experience of leg cramps, right? At same, if it happens in your heart, which has the uses the has the highest metabolic rate, the most mitochondria, etc., then you get uh, heart cramps, which we call angina. Here's the difference: if it happens in your spleen or leg or liver, they stop metabolizing, the lactic acid is flushed out, and it goes back to normal. With the heart and the brain, which we have so-called strokes, that it can't stop. 
right? Because the circulation, the heart, the wall has to expand and contract. It's not pumping, but it's expanding and contracting. It's using the most fuel. It's got the highest metabolic rate. So the lactic acid continues to build up. It acidifies the tissue and acidified tissue causes necrosis, otherwise known as breakdown, which is what we call a heart attack. That's exactly how it happens. Interesting. Okay. Now, the reason that's important is it turns out there is a herb that has been in use, at least that we know of, for 100 years uh, for, for preventing heart attacks, which has a dramatic uh, eff- efficacy. And what does it do? It doesn't have anything to do with unblocking arteries. It simply converts lactic acid into something called pyruvate, which is used as a fuel for respiration. So in other words, the central poison in this drama, which is acid buildup. And by the way, if you do animal studies, every animal that has a heart attack has acidified myocardial tissue. 100%. They don't have lowered oxygen, they don't have blocked arteries, but they all have lactic acid or acidified tissue. So you give somebody this herb called strophanthus seeds, and the lactic acid is converted into pyruvate, it breaks the cycle, the acidification stops, and they don't go on to have a heart attack. Nice. Okay. Very simple, straightforward, used to be used as a prescription medicine, even intravenously. But then when they came up with the blocked artery theory, they said, well, strophanthus doesn't have anything to do with arteries, so it can't possibly work, even though it obviously did work. And so they got rid of it because they wanted to inaugurate the cholesterol myth to change the American diet and sell drugs. Hmm. Well, very good, Tom. This is going really quickly of all the stuff that we're talking about so we're we're just about at the end here um how do people even get a grasp of this where where can they go what can they read to get started to learning you know what's really going on with themselves well we have a website dr tom cowan d-r-t-o-m-c-o-w-a-n.com and i do a weekly hour-long webinar where i explain one thing or another about all this and again we have books and videos and a curriculum for people who want to really intensely study this. We have a clinic that people can become members of, and they they start working with a movement person. They start working with, you know, biofield and sound healing and emotional well-being and fasting and all kinds of stuff, all based on these very simple principles which have been around as long as men and women have been here. Oh, excellent. And the, the place to go is what? DrTomCowan.com. Okay. Tom Cowan is C-O-W-A-N. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Like I said, it, hey, Rich. it would probably take 10 hours to really uh, even get a, a good foothold on what you know. But thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate okay. it. All right. You take care. and Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.